and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Okay, guys, I've been hearing from so many of you about the difficulties you're facing in accessing psychs and social workers alike. It takes so long to get in and see someone when you're not feeling good in yourself. It's disheartening to know that so many of you are out there struggling at a time in need. So I wanted to find a way to help you. And the best way I know how is to put a stopgap in place. I'm going to give you the exact tools that I've used and that I give to others around me to get better when they're struggling or facing adversity. Today, I'm thrilled to announce the Surviving for Thriving course, Discovering the Secrets of Resilience, a six-week journey designed to empower your personal growth and resilience. This course has been meticulously crafted to help you navigate adversity develop an arsenal of strategies to conquer overwhelming moments and create a well of resources at your fingertips. So if you're someone who's feeling overwhelmed and drained, if you're struggling to navigate challenges on your own, if you're trying to cope with uncertainty in your world or craving inspiration and personal growth, then this course is absolutely for you. Let's come together live for one hour a week for six weeks and talk about all things resilience, and not just with me, but with a community of awesome humans to help you along this road. I will record it in case you miss a week, but make sure you catch it live because there will be engaging content, awesome tools, and a great opportunity to ask lots of questions. I'm not just going to teach you this content. I'm going to help you apply it so that it is a real benefit for you. Because I love you guys so much and you have supported this podcast every step of the way, I wanted to do something extra special for you. In the future, this course is going to be $297, but because of your support, I wanted to give you the chance to do it with me this one time for $97. The best way for you to book right now is to jump into our show notes or into our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, and click the link. This will give you all the information you need and make sure you get a spot with us. DM me with any questions you have and absolutely tell your family and friends. This might be just the thing they need today. Let's shift gears and have an honest conversation about today's episode. It is about the suffering of thousands of people, men, women and children of the Azidi community. We tell the story of what happened in August 2014 the mass murders, the sexual violence and the slavery. I want to introduce you today to Salam, a brave and courageous man who lives here locally in Armidale. He shares with us his personal story, what life has been like for him, how he and many others left Iraq and what the future holds for the Yazidi community. This interview touched my heart like no other. I have worked with trauma and I've heard some of the darkest moments of human behavior, but hearing the mass trauma this community has experienced, 
the lives that have been lost and robbed is heartbreaking and eye-opening. I'm so proud of Salam for finding a voice. I hope this episode is heard by many around the world. There is a trigger warning on this episode for murder, violence, war and slavery. And if any of this content disturbs you or stirs something up for you, please reach out to a support person or lifeline on 13 11 14. If this is not the right episode for you today, skip it and we will see you next week. Let me introduce you to Salam. Hi Salam, welcome to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on today. No worries. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me. And Salam, I love to start every interview with asking what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? Well, I would say the best animal, the animal best describes me is a lion because lions are uh, the great leaders and they are decisive decision makers and they are also courageous when they need to be. And I think we'll definitely be hearing about the lion a lot throughout what we talk about today. I've been thinking a lot about this interview over the last couple of weeks and I'm, I'm wondering if the best place to start might be you setting the scene for us a little bit around what life was like for you back at home growing up and leading into before the attacks all started to happen. Well, thanks, thanks, Ali, for, for the question. Uh, back home, the life was very difficult and challenging uh, since we born and, and since the Ezidi uh, born in, in Middle East, in, in Iraq in particular, in the northern Iraq in Sinjar area. And the life is very hard and very challenging even now uh, for the Ezidi community uh, back home in Iraq because 70% of the Ezidi community is still um, like living in the camps in, in a very difficult situation with not enough like water, food for nine years since the uh, Ezidi genocide occurred on the 3rd of August 2014 uh, by ISIS. And the community back home wants to to be out and wants to come to Australia, to Germany, to all around the world. They just wanted to be out of the country because of the ongoing genocides and not protecting the Ezidi community and not having a future to keep the culture and also to keep the community safe uh, from the attacks and also from all these genocides back home. Are you able to explain to us what um, you mean when you say a genocide? Well, the Ezidi community has been, during the historic, been 74 times been genocided. And the last and ongoing one, still an ongoing, unfortunately, was on the 3rd of August 2014 by Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS, which uh, resulted of 7,000 Yazidis being killed, and we still have more than 3,000 Yazidi who remains missing nine years since, with no news. And the house is uh, 80% completely destroyed in Sinjar area and the villages around the Sinjar mountain. And the community been struggling in the camps, and there is no clear plan or any agreement between the Iraqi government or Kurdish government to support the Yazidis who live in northern Iraq. And the Yazidi community and the Yazidi religious, one of the very oldest religious and the small minority in Iraq, 
and because they are very small and like the humanity one of our values and the peace one of our values we always been genocided and we have been the victims of the genocide by by islamic state or by turkish and all our neighbors back home in iraq unfortunately yeah and so you mentioned the word isis so that that's the word that's used to describe the the people that came into attack right yes that's the islamic state in iraq and syria and what they did like uh, when they um like they take over Sinjar and before ISIS, where we're living in Sinjar Mountain and the, the, there is villages around the Sinjar Mountain where the Ezidi live is with uh, uh, our neighbors like the, the Kurdish and also the Arabic uh, community. But when ISIS uh, came to Sinjar, those neighbors, they were supported ISIS and killed us. And we, we've been living together for 100 years. But when ISIS came, they supported ISIS and they killed uh, the Ezidi community. And also both governments, the Iraqi government, this is something important we have to mention. The Iraqi government and the Kurdish government were saying the community is safe and don't worry, we are here to protect you and the community. But when ISIS came, unfortunately, they just give the Ezidi community as a gift to ISIS and they left the Ezidi community behind. And we knew that ISIS would come to Sinjar because they in Syria, which is 10 kilometers uh, away from the, the area we live. And we tried to be out uh, three months before ISIS and the Kurdish government and the Iraqi government didn't allow the Ezidi community to be out. And they just left the community behind when ISIS came. And that's why it resulted of 7,000. It's been killed and 3,000 still been missing. And the holy places and religion shrines, they completely been destroyed. And so far, we got 92 mass graves discovered so far in Iraq and, and, and Syria and the area where ISIS took the Yazidi community. And they would only give them two options, either to convert to become a Muslim or they would be killed. That was one of the ISIS questions. And also selling the, uh, our sisters and mothers like in a celebrity markets as a chook for $5. The Ezidi girl, five years old, nine years old, being sold for $5. And it's been sold to not just one member of ISIS. They've been sold. 10 times while they're captive in, in, in Syria or in Iraq. And because some Yazidi women, they refused to have a sex by ISIS fighters, they burned them alive in Mosul. That's the, the big city in, in Iraq. So they burned them alive because they refused to have a sex. They did all of this under the name of God. I'm just wondering and asking what God mm. is, is asking for these things to be happen. Yeah. So they killed us under the name of God, but we ask under the name of humanity to support the community and to survive them. I don't. I don't even have words, Salam. Where's you saying that? I, you know, it is is devastating and so confronting hearing you say that. And you mentioned that it happened on the 3rd of August in 2014. Are you able to tell me about that day? Well, on on that day, uh, what happened? The Ezidi community were like in in area in Sinjar Mountain and the villages around the Sinjar. And on about 2 a.m. the night from the 2 to the 3rd, about 2 a.m., 
the ISIS vehicles, they came to the villages and they fight the, the community and the families. And they uh, captured the, the elders and the women and the men. And they killed them in front of their family members and on, on front of their children. And whoever trying to escape, they will be killed in uh, by ISIS. Uh, they fighting the families and uh, the eldest and the women and men and children. And we don't have anything like to to protect ourselves on that time because the Kurdish government and the Iraqi government was saying we will protect you guys. But when the ISIS came, we saw uh, just the ISIS and there was no Iraqi government and there was no Kurdish government and particularly the Kurdish government they was they was controlling the area on that time. They just left the community behind and and they didn't allow even the community to fight the ISIS and 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 to to protect their families and and after they left the Azidi community uh, some volunteers and some senior uh, Azidis they they did fight ISIS to protect some families and to survive some families and again. After the liberation of, of, of Sinjar area, again, if you go to the social media, the, the Kurdish government would say we liberated Sinjar area, or the Iraqi government would say we liberated Sinjar area, and which is zero percent is true, and that's completely not true. The only one who survived Sinjar, liberated Sinjar, and uh, the air, like the villages around Sinjar, was the Ezidi community only, who took like their gun from home and fight at ISIS to, to keep Sinjar and the mountain and, and some of the uh, holy places to, to stay safe and, and the families who, who went to the mountain. Because I was thinking as you were saying, where was the rest of the world, you know? Where were the people to come in and fight for you? Where And it, it, part of that I'm hearing is that the information that was coming out was actually inaccurate as well. But where was everyone? The only thing happened uh, at the beginning uh, was like the UN or uh, the American. They did like bomb uh, ISIS car vehicles on, on the beginning, uh, and that was that was uh, the first thing that happened after the the community said we're in a danger, and that's all happened. So that was that was happened by UN. But after that, unfortunately, as I mentioned, uh, the both governments were saying we are supporting and we are fighting for the community and they're taking advantage of that and receiving income support from the international communities because they said we are supporting the Yazidi community and we are fighting for them. But we, it was not true at all. Mm. So where did people go? Like when you said that that all started to happen, did everyone flee their homes? Where did they go? What did that look like? But they, they flee their homes to the mountain, and for some families, uh, they just flee like walking from Sinjar to Syria, which is about uh, 150 kilometers away, like the Sinjar and Syria, and in some area which is away about 10 kilometers. But we cannot go through that way because ISIS was in the middle. So some families they flee to the mountain and they spend two weeks through three weeks without food, without uh, drinks. And some people I witnessed it and I saw them they died because there was no water and there was no food for the community who went to the mountain. And some community members 
members, they, they walk through uh, the border uh, between Syria and Iraq, and some of them, they went to, to Kurdistan by walking, and the rest being captured by ISIS, unfortunately. And we still have, as I said, 3,000 missing, including two uncles of mine. That must be so incredibly hard not knowing, you know, that number of unaccounted. We spoke about that the other day. I asked whether you have family that are unaccounted for and just not knowing about whether they're alive, whether they're captured. Yeah, and the other, the other important things I have to mention that when they captured the, the Azidi families, they took them to an area they called Talafar, which is a why about um, one hour driving from Sinjar area. And the community will be captured by ISIS. They were there in, in Talafar, which is an hour away from Sinjar. They were there for three months. And during these three months, we did said, if someone can support, if someone can assist, if we can get some help to survive these people, because an hour they away from here, if we have like the guns and, and stuff, we would be doing like to go and, and, and to try to survive them. But the Iraqi government and the Kurdish government, they like should to protect and they didn't do anything in that regard. And after three months, the community were in Telafar. They just took them away to Syria and to all other countries and they killed the rest of the men and, and the women. They, they keep them for sex and, and unfortunately and, and selling them in a salivary markets in Syria and in Nineveh, in Mosul. And so, Salam, what was your journey through this? Like, did you go up to the mountain how did you navigate through all of this? Well, at that time, I was a university student doing my degree in psychology. And I completed like uh, four assessments and there were six to be completed. And I just came to, to Nineveh first. I was doing my degree in Mosul in Nineveh. So after that, I went to Sinjar area. And during the ISIS, yes, I was there and I was in a place they call uh, Sharaf al-Din, which is one of the Azidi, uh, the second holy places, like the second important ones. It's been uh, called Sharaf al-Din, which is located in Sinjar area. So I was there during ISIS time and we, we was there to support the families and, and to get some water from the villages and take them to the mountain for the kids and for the children and also assisting the elders who cannot walk mm -hmm. by holding them and, and taking them to, to, to a place that away from ISIS and, and, and to keep the family who flee to the mountain to keep them safe. So you would take people up to the mountain and then come back and get more? Yes, yes. And also taking the water and food from the area they called Sharafuddin to, to those families and, and just to keep them alive until the border was open. And again, assisting them to go to Syria or to the Kurdistan region, to the camps. That was also something we assisted the community through. Yeah. And when you talk about the camps, are you talking about the refuge camps, refugee camps? Yes, the refugee camps. In, there was the refugee camps that, uh, after the genocide. Uh, they set up some refugee camps in Syria and also some refugee camps in Kurdistan region, which the community went. And some of the community members, they didn't stay in the refugee camps at all. They went all the way to Turkey and then in illegal way to Greece and to Germany, about uh, 
100,000 Yazidis, they fled in that way as well during the Yazidi genocide. Mm. And are you able to tell us a little bit about the refugee camps as well? Are you able to talk about what it was what it was like, what the conditions were like. And, you know, for some people, they, they won't know what a refugee camp is. Yeah, well, as I mentioned in, uh, in the beginning, 70% of the Yazidi community living in the refugee camps right now without uh, enough food, drinks, electrician, and with burning the tents every single day and, and killing the people again in the refugee camps in Kurdistan region and in Syria. And for some political reason, again, unfortunately, it's been nine years, the Yazidi community living in the refugee camps in a very difficult uh, situation and in a very dangerous because of the uh, of the burning the tents and, and not feeling safe. They keep them in the refugee camps again. That's the Kurdish government to take the advantage when the parliament election or the federal election is happening and they're taking their votes without their permission. And that's why they keep the community in the refugee camps for nine years now and with not even planning anything to get them back to Sinjar area and rebuild the houses and restart the life in Sinjar area. It's just like it's so far removed from our reality here and, you know, just just to think that that is what you saw and what you experienced and what your family went through. I'm so sorry for that in every aspect. No, thank you. And and right now, like the, the community who lives in the refugee camps, I won't even call the refugee camps. I will call the jail because if you go there as a journalist or if you wanted to, to do the reports, they're not even allowing you to go and see the, the Yazidi community because they are... Uh, not confident because the community would say the truth and what happened to them because of these people. So if you go there, you have to go all through the Kurdish government and they have to see what you wanted to ask. If they, if that's something, the community would say the truth. They won't allow you to go there. Mm. Like if the community wants to, to be out, they have to go through the security point, which is uh, by the Kurdish government. And some some of the, the community members been arrested because they just write what they think it's it is true and because of, of what they saying. I knew too many people being arrested by the Kurdish government and the Iraqi government because they said the truth and because they they working for the EZD future, mm. which is not allowed in that case uh, back home. And just recently, a month ago, there was in just in two weeks, there was more than one million hate speech against the Yazidi community by the, the Kurdish religious leaders. They were saying the Yazidis uh, burning the mosque in Sinjar, which is not true at all. And the Yazidi community, who was the one protected the mosque, even all this genocide, our religious didn't say to go and damage anything. Our values and our, our culture didn't say to go. We just respect all the communities, all the religions, and we also uh, just communicating and, and wanted to be a good friends of, of, of our neighbors. Even the neighbors did all these bad things to us. We didn't say anything, and we did protect the Moscow, uh, the ISIS were destroying the Ezidi temple or the religious shrines, but we 
protected the Moscow. And because of the social media that someone was posting um, fake photos that the Yazidis were burning the Moscow, we got two million, about two million hate speech in two weeks by the Kurdish religious leaders and in a live videos without saying anything to them by the, the government. Why? Mm. So where is the human rights for, for the Yazidis in Middle East? And Salam, I'm just, I heard you say earlier around the refugee camps and being not exposed to this before, I always thought the refugee camps were designed, their purpose was to try and keep people safe. And listening to you, I can hear that is not the experience over there. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, unfortunately. And the community didn't have any job opportunities and they didn't have any income from the Iraqi or the Kurdish government. And the community didn't have that access to the education and to the health uh, while they're in a refugee camps. And they have nothing to do, unfortunately, and they just keep them in the refugee camps for some political reasons and to, to keep taking their votes for, for the election and that's it. Mm. And at the beginning, there was some uh, organization who supported the AZD community at the beginning of the refugee camps, like the IOM and the UNICE and uh, some other organization who assisted the communities in the first uh, days. But unfortunately, they're not there now. Mm. So It's like they've been left there and there's no one coming in. Yep, they've been left. Yeah. And also, it's it's very dangerous for, for the communities because every single day we can hear and see uh, the burning of tents because of the electricity short or whatever they call. We, we lost about 100 community members since the community settled in the refugee camps with, with electricity shorts and with burning the tents and with no enough medication and no enough food. And if someone decided that they wanted to leave the refugee camp, could they? It depends on the situation and also uh, would be depends on the government Do they will allow him to go or not. That's something they will check with the security point, mm-hmm. which is controlled by the Kurdish government. Mm-hmm. And then they will decide whether they leave him to go or keep him in the refugee camps. So how did you come to Australia? Like, you know, how did it go from this, what you're telling us now, to even thinking about Australia? Like, why was Australia even the place to start with? Well, after the the, the, the genocide happened, after the ZD genocide on the 3rd of August 2014, we heard that uh, the community who've been affected by ISIS, which all the ZD community been affected, but for those families who lost uh, family members, they can register uh, to be accepted under the humanitarian visa to Australia, to Canada, to German, and to French. So we did register our names, uh, and then we, we've been called by Oman Embassy, uh, by Australian in Embassy in Oman, and we did uh, two, three interviews uh, in 2017 and 2016. And then uh, we were waiting for four years to to get the visa granted and to come to Australia. And some community members still waiting for five years, seven years, six years with no news at all. Like they've been registered their names and there is uh, nothing yet to, to be called. And again, unfortunately, they put some interpreters uh, from the different communities. And that's why they're calling people that 
telling them your visa has been refused, and which is not. But because of misunderstanding and there was no right interpreters and people who support the community in the embassy and in the other countries, some families been refused. And after we came to Australia, some of the families I can see it's been granted the visa, but the interpreter were calling them that your application been refused and you are no longer uh, eligible to, to go. How do you get that message to someone now? It is very difficult, and we 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 are trying like to to be in contact with with all the the decision makers. Like for mm-hmm. example, the Home Affairs. I have been meeting with the Home Affairs and and passing all this information to them because they not up to date about what's going on in Iraq and 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 for the AZD community. So we are trying um, to pass all this information to the decision makers, to the Home Affairs, and to other countries even because the community in a very bad situation and some community members been waiting for seven years with no news. Like it's ridiculous. When you say waiting, you, you mentioned that you waited for a couple of years. Some people have been waiting for four, some for seven. Where are they waiting? Like what does life look like in that wait period? It is very difficult. And for example, my uncle, we did the interview together, the first interview and the second interview. And I, I've been here for four years and my uncle is still uh, back home in Iraq. And that's also mean if you are in a waiting list, uh, like your children, they cannot get married. And if someone gets married, that's mean that would be delay again at least two, three years for some families. And if someone passes away until they update all this information again, that also would take a year or two years to be completed. So it's been very difficult and they are just in a waiting list and they don't know what to do and they cannot do anything because they're waiting. So if someone gets married, that means they have to wait another even longer. And if someone passes away, it's the same. And if someone gets married, it's the same. If someone has a new child, they have also, again, to, to wait at least 12 months mm. to get the information updated, and which is very, very difficult for the family members who are in a waiting list. And when they're in a waiting list, where are they living? Uh, some of them, they are living in, in Sinjar area, okay. uh, and some of them in a refugee camps, okay. and some of them in Turkey, again, in refugee camps. Mm-hmm. So they just in all these three areas now. And when you say interview, what is the interview? What are they asking you? But they're just asking about the basic like information, what happened to you when ISIS uh, attacked Sinjar, and uh, what's your like, career, and what did you do before ISIS, and would you like to go to Australia, for example, to Canada, to Germany? So this sort of question, and also the health check, they do the health check for, for the people who have been granted. And is there a priority, like as in when they ask those questions, does your answer dictate whether you're going to be the person that gets to go or not? No, I don't think that's the the purpose of the interviews. The interviews, they just wanted to see uh, what happened to you and actually what you can do when you when you travel to Australia and what benefit the government will get from you. Okay. Okay. So yeah. what you can offer the country you're going to. Yes. 
Right. And you mentioned you can choose. Do you get a choice in where you go? Or they ask that question to see because they've got certain numbers of people that can go. Like, is that, could you have chosen where you wanted to go to? No. So, for example, in French, they decided to take 100 families from the AZD community. So they tried to take the vulnerable people and who are in immediate need. But again, some people been traveled from from other communities and they registered them as Yazidis, unfortunately, and taking them instead of the, the Yazidi families who are in immediate need. Yeah. So that's happening from all the wise to just to take the advantage of the Yazidi community. and. And did anyone get to go with their family? Like, did they ever take a whole family or was it if someone got to go, they were usually on their own? Uh, no, they go with the family, some of them, and some of them with their own. But what they told us during the interviews, which is very disappointing, they said, when you get to Australia, you can sponsor your relatives, your brothers, your sisters, and your family, and they will be approved and they will come to Australia after you, you go there. But unfortunately, when we came, it's been four years now, and the community is sponsoring their family members, brothers, sisters, and relatives, and no one being a success, and they all application being just refused and rejected by the Home Affairs. More lies, you know, more deceit, more challenge. And when you say sponsor, is that financial sponsorship? Is that you putting your life on the line for them? Like, what does that word mean? Uh, that's mean someone here who lives here in Australia can sponsor, like, for example, I was doing the application for my brother to, to come to Australia and it, it's been refused. They said uh, it's not eligible for any kind of humanitarian visa. That he's not eligible. Yes. And I still don't know who would be the eligible. Like if the Zidi community are not eligible and going all through these genocides and the hardship uh, and, and, and have nowhere to live, you know? Yeah, well, I, I don't, you know, listening to you, I'm like, I, this is, I really don't, I really don't know. And I, it is so hard to comprehend, you know, when you're saying this, your experience that you went through, and we haven't even started with the transition over to Australia, but even just saying now that you've been told that you can reach out to your family and bring them across and now you're reaching out and they're not coming, you know, you don't know where they are. You don't know if they're safe. You don't know what that future holds for them. Yeah, and they're not safe at all. And I can guarantee they're not safe. And every single day, there's bombing by government and taking the kids uh, by other uh, different militaries, taking the kids away. And now they're not safe. They're not safe at all. And they're just looking in a way to go to be out. And But unfortunately, due to the financial situation and they don't have any income uh, so they have no way even to live or to go. Mm. And are you able to share with us the moment that you found out you could go? Like what was that like? Because I can imagine there would have been a lot of different emotions around that. Well, it is. Uh, it is I've been called in on the 5th of July 2019 and they said are you ready to go to Australia on the 9th of July which is two two days uh, just I said well yes uh, I've been ready for for three years or four years since the genocide I'm I'm very happy that I received that that phone call from the Australian embassy in Oman and I just I, at that time, I was uh, in Mosul, which is the second big city in, in Iraq, and I was 
doing some volunteering to the high school students, just uh, assisting them with uh, some uh, applications and some paperwork in, in Mosul, so, which is two and a half hours away from where I live, from Sinjar area. And I was uh, like volunteering, uh, like even I got my degree, there was no employment by the government, so you, you don't have any future. So I was volunteering for three years to teach the high school students, uh, just volunteering with no income at all. And at that time, I was also working as a, uh, a team leader for the Save the Children organization and and leading the child, uh, like the kindergarten in the village, just to, to give the, a safe place for, for the kids to come and enjoy their time and just do some activities. Mm. And that's that line that we spoke about at the start, isn't it? That leader in you. Yep, exactly. So that would have made it hard to leave, I'd imagine. Like there's that part of you that wants to go, but I can imagine leaving. It was it was uh, like hard. And it was happy, like happy moment. And again, it was very difficult as well because happy that I will be in, in a safe place and I will have a, a better life and better future. And also it was uh, difficult because like leaving all of them Mm. in that situation mm. and not knowing and so what did it look like when you came across well when we came across uh, I came to Australia and arrived in Amidal on the 9th of July 2019 which has been four years and I will just mention the the thing happened with me on the second day um the second day when we came to Amidal, it was very cold and I went outside and one of our neighbors uh, came outside as well. I only have hello and hi and hello with me in English. And my neighbor, he was he was uh, looking at me and say, Grandma, how's it going? I said, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> What's he doing? What, what he's doing. <laughs> so, so I went with to him with my phone, uh, with a Google translator. Can you please write down what you said? I put it in Arabic and translated it in English. And when he did, I said, oh, thank you, just in a body language. That means, <laughs> hi, how are you? <laughs> and to be honest, it was very difficult at the beginning because of the language barrier and the culture difference differences and the law differences and it's a different environment and different culture and different community and you didn't speak any english no only hi and hello with me at that time so it was it was very difficult like at the beginning but what i did i tried from the first day to to improve my english to learn english through uh, youtube uh, listening to the radio listening to the tvs to the news and also doing some practice at home uh, by myself and 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 teach my wife as well to learn English. You know, that is that is the first time I've heard something so positive about YouTube. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, my God, it's so good to know that that was able to help you in that moment because, like, you wouldn't even think about it. And if we didn't have access to that, then you would have been on your own. You know, you wouldn't have had access to learn it. You were one of the first, weren't you, to come to Armadale? 
wasn't like the first, but uh, there was the community who lives in, in Australia before I came to, to Armidale. Uh, my dad's family, they came before me, uh, it was about three months before we came. And then my wife and I, we came in July 2019 at the drought time and there was fire and it was a very difficult month as well. Mm. What was it like? those first few weeks and months? It was very difficult, uh, to be honest, as I mentioned, because of the language barrier and, again, the differences between the environment that we came from and from Australia. And also it was lots of smoke, smoking, like because of the bushfire at that time. It was so bad. And what we did, uh, my wife and I, we, when washing the dishes, we were saving that water to water the garden from that water because it was very drought and, and there was not enough water. So it was very difficult like for us. And also like connecting with, with the community because there is no language, it was very difficult. Like accessing to the resources, it was difficult, but with the community support and the great Armidale community, um, we've just been okay after two, three weeks. And we, we feel we've been very welcomed and we're very grateful to be here. And, and we feel like we're just born again because there is a sense of humanity and equality and, and the human rights and everyone have their rights and, and safe to live. So it's been great. Do you feel safe here? Yes, we do feel safe. Uh, even there's some break-ins into the houses that's happening in all around the world, but now we feel safe and we, we're very grateful to be here and to be part of the great Armidale community. Oh, you know, I'm just – I think I can only speak from my experience. When, when I first heard it, I we had a um kind of a program here where we had some of these ED women come in and and even back then I still had no idea you know like I tried to do some research and it was still so new and you know I remember the girls coming in and they didn't know what age they were they you know they couldn't speak any English we had an interpreter in here but the thing that I noticed the most was the smiles and the laughter and I just thought, wow, like from what you have been through, the fact that you can even come into this place, this gym, not know who we are and still be smiling and laughing, like I just, that really touched my soul. Yeah, now uh, the community is very kind, like the community is very respectful and the community, they just wanted to like to to live a life. Uh, that's the only Thing we want we just wanted to be safe and to be in a life and and to support the community around us and to share our culture and our food and everything with with our neighbors and that was again something different between the our culture and the Australian culture so back home when you when you move to the new like village we can say or to the new city all the neighbors will come to you welcome what we can do for you how we can help you with but uh, again, it was very, very different. Like, for example, when I bought my house uh, and when I moved in in 2020, uh, in December 2020, all the neighbors, I cannot see any of the neighbors even came and say hello and, and welcome to the area or 
to our neighborhood. But what I did when I settled uh, weeks and weeks after settlement, uh, I did cooked a lunch and invited all the neighbors and just said, uh, that's how we do and that's our culture. We, we would love to, to share our food and, and to be kind to the neighbors and to everyone. And I'm glad that some of them, uh, they said, uh, we've learned now how to, uh, <laughs> how to be a good neighbors. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, that's the gift that you're going to bring to us is to show us another way. You know, when someone comes in, how do we welcome them with open arms and accept and connect? Yeah. And, and, and again, the community, they just want to, to support the community around them. But again, because of the language barrier sometimes and, and, and the culture differences, like for example, I can see some elderly in the road sometimes. They need assistance uh, when I first arrived. But due to not speaking English, I cannot even say, is there something I can help you with? Mm. And some people may not even ask because they don't know what's the, the differences and what's the differences between the Azidi and the Australian culture. Mm. I don't think I've told you this story, Salam, but my mom, <laughs> I was over at her house the other day and all these kids came in and I was like, who are these children, mom? And she's like, Oh, they're my friends from up the road and all these little Azidi kids just come over and play for a few hours and then go home. And, you know, but that explains it, right? Because when you move into the neighbourhood, the whole neighbourhood is your community. Yeah, that's what we uh, expect and that's what we say when we move to to the new neighbourhood, that we are part of that neighbourhood and we no longer see ourselves as refugees. And I do, again, hate the terms of refugee because... We're not refugees and, and we feel we are part of this beautiful country and community. And let's talk about the future. Let's talk about what the future holds for you personally and then we'll go wider into the community and everyone at home. So what does your future look like for you now? Well, uh, it's been four years since I came to Armidale now and I just launched my application to become an Australian citizen, waiting for Australian citizenship test. So hopefully it will be soon and I will pass the tests and then we can, and Uzi. <laughs> so the community, all the community looking forward to become uh, an Australian citizenship. What will that mean for you when you become an Australian citizen? What does that translate to? Well, that's the settlement being done and I'm free and I can teach some others how to become an Australian citizen and how to, to offer and how to contribute to the country and how they can support the community around us and how we can support each other as a community and as a human. And for me to become an Australian, that's something I'm very, I would be very proud of to become an Australian citizen. And that will, will uh, guarantee the future of, of me and my family that we can stay and we can contribute to the country and we can uh, help and support the communities who is in need. And what about being able to go home? Is that something that you hope for one day? Is that something that is even possible? Or is that just like you just know that you won't go back there? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, we still have like brothers and sisters and relatives who, who live there. One day uh, we are hoping like to visit them, but without becoming an Australian citizen. So when we go there, uh, like people like myself, they may be arrested by the Iraqi or the Kurdish government because we are fighting for the for the Yazidi future and we are um, we are working for for the Yazidi community and which is something not allowed uh, to say back home. So that's also one of the reasons. Our 
wanted to become an Australian citizen before visiting my brothers and sisters and just to get guaranteed that uh, if I go there, there is someone can help if, if, if something happened. Yeah. And is it risky for you to be talking to me and talking out like this at the moment? Is, it, is there a risk associated with that? Uh, in, in some cases, yes, but... Uh, I don't think that will be that risky, like, uh, but yes. So, Salam, I can imagine that there has been so many lessons along your road. What ones come to mind for you? What life lessons through everything you have been through? Yeah, I can mention one of them. There is a huge, but I can mention one of them. Uh, be kind to yourself. Uh, treat yourself like with the same compassion you would offer to the others because sometimes we do a lot for all the communities and all the people in need around us and we do forget about ourselves. Mm. So just be kind to yourself. Mm, Such wise words. And I know we haven't touched on yet and I really want to give some space for this around the Yazidi language. You were telling me about this the other day and and I remember just thinking, what? <laughs> like, oh, my God, I just it really shocked me. So can we just talk a little bit around the Yazidi language? Yeah, sure. And again, unfortunately, uh, the Yazidi community came to Australia in late 2017 uh, under the humanitarian visa and settled in Wagga Wagga, in Coffs Harbour, in Armidale and in Queensland, in Tiomba. And so far, we have more than 5,000 Yazidis who lives in, in different cities in, in Australia. And again, due to non-Azidis lived in Australia before the settlement uh, for some political reason, again, uh, damaging the culture and the community. They call the Azidi community as a Kurdish-Kurmanji community, which is completely different to the Azidi community. And the language being recognized for the Azidi community, if you asking for interpreters, the only option Kurdish Kurmanji, which is completely different community and different culture and different language. And the Ezidi language is one of the very challenges the Ezidi community facing since the settlement. And there is the wrong surgery being done because of misunderstanding and not accessing the government department agencies because of the misunderstanding and they didn't they they didn't understand from each other. And even the community not understanding uh, the Kurdish Kurmanji, but they shy, they say that I'm not understanding because what they have experienced back home and what mm-hmm. they went through. Because back home, we're not allowed to say if something wrong, we say that's wrong. So the community, uh, they're not even uh, saying that, even they're not understanding. But this is very dangerous. And community members been waiting for 12 hours in the emergency uh, because there is no... ZD language in the interpreting system and not understanding from each other. If they book and Kurdish Kurmanji interprets for them, and that takes 12 hours, and if that patient dies in the emergency, who would be responsible for mm. that? Mm. So the, the very challenging is the ZD community facing is the ZD language. And also we, we see the language is one of our identity mm-hmm. to be called. The ZD language is also one of our identity. And even uh, the sanctuary president, Jeff Siegel, I wanted to thank him through this interview and myself. 
we did try two submissions and write all the information and the differences between the AGD language and the Kurdish Kurmanji and getting the support letters from all the organizations and from health and from uh, all different agents' uh, services. And the both submission been refused by NATI, unfortunately. And it's very disappointing. And the community needs to, to get the Ezidi language be recognized and employ some Ezidis to interpret for the community for, for a smooth communication and, and understanding from each other. And instead of like spending a billion of dollars in a papers in, in a Kurdish Kumanji writing for Ezidi community that no one can even access, they can just recognize the Ezidi language in the system and employ some people and that's it. It's not a big deal if they wanted to solve, you know, but Again, uh, I can see it's been more political again, even here. Yeah. Oh, I... And changing changing the language and the identity. Yeah, and I had no idea until you told me that the other day. That was new information. And I remember just thinking, like you said, it's part of your identity. It is. It is. And the community, like, we've been traumatized. Like, for example, myself, if someone called me, uh, you are a Kurdish Kurmanji, I won't be happy at all. Mm. I do respect them, but I'm an Azidi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not accurate. No. Mm. And let's talk about Armadale and what support you've received since arriving. Well, since we arriving, I uh, just want to again to thank all the community who lives in Armadale, and we are very grateful to be here and to be part of this beautiful community and country. And well, since we came to Armadale, all the community they're just smiling to us, giving love and and, and supporting us in all the ways, uh, starting from volunteering and and ending with. Uh, citizenship test and, 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 and supporting them to become a citizenship. We are very grateful to be here and we, 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 we're receiving all the support from every single one who lives in Amidal and, and, and in the community, not just the services, again, from the community itself as well. And, and, and from the Aboriginal community. And we are in a very good relationship with the Aboriginal community. And we are inviting each other in events and in celebrations and in commemorations. That's something, again, we are very proud and happy to be connected with all the communities who live in, in Amidal and in Australia. Mm. And we are always here to help and support in any way we can to make sure that the community around us also feel that we can contribute something. Yeah, yeah. And how can we best support you going forwards? Like if there's anyone, let's keep it to Armadale because there's lots of listeners on this um, podcast from all around the world. But, you know, just locally here in Armadale, what can we do that can keep supporting? Well, the thing they can do to support the community, uh, they can start with just saying hello to the families when they arrive. That's meaning a lot for the community. If someone first arrives, if if you just go there, hi and welcome, and we are here if there is something we can help you with. That will mean a lot for that family who just arrived. Mm. Because in our culture, uh, as I mentioned, when they move to the new area or to the new country, the, the first important things, the neighbors. Mm. And there is like uh, a talk in, in our culture, before you buy a house, just ask the neighbors, you know, see if they are okay to to buy a house in that area <laughs> so i would say the first thing just say hello and 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 if there is something we can help you with and they will start asking if there is anything needs to be done or to be like something in need to to help them but like assisting the agd community 
giving them the job opportunities because about 725 Yazidis who, who, who call Armidal home and uh, job opportunities, it's been a bit of challenges now for the Yazidi community and people ready to work and they very happy to, to become an employee in, in all different um, sectors uh, like the mechanic or uh, all different services. And they have experience. Some of them may need just uh, some support around the language barrier, but they do have a good experience. So just give them a chance and support them. And I'm pretty sure they will be ready in in two months or one month. And there's so much support to get them ready as well, I think is a big thing. You know, if they're not quite there yet, I know that you're, that's part of what you do in your um, work is getting people ready. Yeah, exactly. And what I did, like uh, I would say myself an as an example, I did some volunteering at the beginning and then just doing a bit and a bit. So now I'm working as a full time with, with all the support that I'm receiving from uh, people around me and from uh, the Amidal community. So that's, again, if you wanted to support the community, just uh, be with them and help them to get employed and also giving them the job opportunities. Mm. And you're doing an incredible job, Salami. You're doing such an incredible job. Before we finish up, I was thinking if you could send a message or say something to your family that are still back over home, what would you say to them? Well, the message is I just I'm wishing and, and hoping like to meet with uh, with the people who are still missing one day. Yeah. Salam, I don't have enough of a way to express to you how I feel about this interview today. Like you have come on here with so much courage and bravery and awesome Aussie language, like to think that you have only been here four years and you walked into this country being able to just say hello and hi. I mean, I love how you say Australia, by the way. You have nailed that. But I just honestly, like it's not easy. It's not easy to come on and talk about. And we really thought about it, didn't we? We really thought about whether we were going to go ahead with this interview or not. Yep. But, yeah, and so I just from the bottom of my heart – from the very depths of my heart, I just want to say thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us today. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk a bit about uh, what we went through and to the audience that uh, who we are, why we're here today. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. And Salama, I love to ask at the end of every podcast, who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? And that seems like a really odd question to ask at the end of an interview and an episode that we've just recorded like you and I have. But the reason why it's so important is exactly what I said to you when I met these Edie women when they walked into my gym is that it is truly a mark of human spirit that you can still find joy and laugh after such traumatic experiences. Well, thank you. The, the thing make me really laugh is funny videos, like videos of animals or children or uninspected situations. That's make me really laugh, yes. And do you watch them often? Yes, yes. <laughs> I try to watch them every night uh, because what we do, it's a bit heavy, uh, the job we do. So I'm trying to to at least to see one or two videos that makes me really laugh. Just to close that off, I love that you say a bit heavy, like that description of 
what we do is a bit heavy. I'm like, what you do is incredible <laughs> and it is so heavy. Yeah. But you get up every day and you are, you are really making a difference and you are really having an impact. And I feel privileged to have met you. And I know this is absolutely not the last time we're going to be having a conversation. Well, thank you. Thanks, Sally. Again, thanks for having me and thanks for the opportunity that gives me to talk a bit about what's going on and who we are and how we can support each other. So thank you very much. Thanks, Ali. I feel so privileged to have met Salam and share his story. There were moments in this interview that we both had to stop and take a breath just so we could continue. Salam spoke so honestly and openly about what he has seen and what he has experienced, and it wasn't easy. I asked Salam after the interview if there's anything else I can share with the audience that might be able to support the Yazidi community. And he said to offer the invite out to everyone that's here locally, that on the 3rd of August at the town hall between 2 and 4 p.m., the Yazidi community would like to extend their heartfelt invitation to you for the commemoration of the ninth anniversary of the Yazidi genocide. This commemoration aims to honour the lives lost and for us to stand beside the Yazidi community. So if you're here, I will be going along and we welcome you with open arms. And don't forget, everyone, that we have the Resilience course starting very soon. So jump in the show notes or on our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, so that you can book your spot. I'll see you all next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. Oh, 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 oh,